three years ago, that massive explosion at the port of Beirut killed more than 200 people, injured thousands. It was uh, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. It was soon revealed that the uh, that there were tons of fertilizer stored at the dock that caused the explosion. And it happened at a time when Lebanon was already in political and economic chaos and in the middle of um, the COVID pandemic. Dalal Mawad is a journalist who was based in Beirut at the time of the explosion. And she's written a book of the stories of the women of Beirut and how this explosion continues to affect their lives and indeed Lebanon itself. The title, All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation and the Women Who Survived, published by Bloomsbury. Dalal, welcome to our little wireless program. Take us back three years to the day of the explosion as you experienced it. Thank you, Philip, for having me on. Um, Three years ago, our lives, the lives of Lebanese, changed forever. Uh, In every Lebanese household, there's a before and after August 4th. Um, On that day, as you mentioned, uh, thousands, 2,500 tons of ammonium nitrate stored at the port of Beirut exploded and devastated the city. I remember how half of the city, almost half of it, was completely destroyed Uh, I had never seen Beirut uh, like this. It reminded me of Homs in Syria and Mosul in Iraq, although those cities were damaged by months and years of airstrikes and and war. Um, Lebanon, as you know, has witnessed a civil war, and yet people who survived the explosion say that they had seen nothing like this during the, the civil war. As you mentioned, more than 220 people died, thousands were injured, uh, made uh, homeless overnight. Uh, many people have been able to return three years on to their homes, others have not. But this explosion really left um, a scar. Um, I always say I was not physically hurt, my house was not damaged, but part of me was broken forever. And I think there's something in the soul of Beirut that was killed on that day. No, you were working as a journalist covering the economic and uh, financial crises in Lebanon at the time and uh, and COVID, so you were already thinking Lebanon was on the ropes. Yes, we thought we had uh, hit rock bottom, uh, you know, that that summer. It was the summer of 2020. Uh, There was an economic and financial meltdown that the World Bank has described as one of the three worst economic crises since the 19th century. Uh, The Lebanese were struggling with lack of power. Uh, There was no, there was fuel shortage. The currency had lost 80% of its value. There was a shortage of medicine. Really, things were very um, dire. And then the explosion happened. So really people were struggling with that crisis and then on top of that came that devastating uh, blast. Tell me about your day though. Tell me what you experienced. So I was not physically hurt. My house is on the outskirts of Beirut, but I always say that the pandemic uh, saved me because I worked for the Associated Press in our offices where in downtown Beirut. Um, But because of the pandemic, I was working at home. 
um, in the next morning when I went to check on in our office, I really had no roof above my uh, my desk. And so I really say that because of the pandemic, my life and maybe the lives of my colleagues were, were saved uh, that day. But I was home and around 6 p.m. I was trying to feed my cat and I heard what sounded like airplanes, you know, Israeli airplanes had been violating Lebanon's airspace for many, many years, many decades. Lebanon is at its state of war with Israel since its creation in 1948. And that summer, those um, airplanes were very, very frequent. And so I thought this is what I heard. And then all of a sudden, I heard um, a very loud explosion, the loudest I'd ever heard in my life in Lebanon. And my life in Lebanon is not short of uh, explosions and, and wars. I've survived and witnessed Israeli wars on Lebanon, assassinations and bombings and explosions that I've covered as a journalist. This was really the loudest thing I'd ever heard in, in, my, in my life. And it left me wondering uh, if there was an airstrike nearby. And mind you, I was on the outskirts of Beirut. And this is what every Lebanese thought. They thought that something had hit nearby. They didn't know that it was at the port of Beirut, many kilometers away. And it would take us until the next morning. It took me at least because I couldn't get to Beirut right away until the early hours of the next day. Um, I was able to go in because I was a journalist and I had a press pass. And it is only on my way down that I realized the magnitude of the devastation and the destruction. Um, the destruction and the glass that was broken started many kilometers outside of Beirut. And then as you got closer to the epicenter, which is the port, uh, of course, the devastation was, was increasing. And really, it's like nothing, nothing I had seen um, before. And I always say this, what's really striking is that it was... Beirutis themselves, residents of the city who were trying to remove the rubble, um, clearing the way, uh, looking for um, loved ones. I did not see policemen or um, you know, security officials or the army trying to help. It was really the residents themselves. There was no official response for many days on. And this is something you would hear from women in the book as well, which is really mind-boggling um, that people who'd lost so much were the ones who were trying to help others and, and save others. Now, the world learned quickly about that huge amount of fertiliser, ammonium nitrate, and it had been stored at the docks for years. And, well, many people knew about the fertiliser, including uh, ministers and prime ministers, but uh, Donna, no one had done a damn thing about it. That's true. We did not know. For almost seven years, these were stored in what we call warehouse number 12 at the port. Um, they were uh, offloaded, that ammonium nitrate, which is highly explosive. Uh, this is something that's usually used either as fertilizers in agriculture, but also to make explosives and, and bombs. They were stored in the port um, for uh, since 2014, when they were offloaded from a ship that reportedly came from Georgia and was uh, going to Mozambique. We don't know if it was really going to Mozambique. A human Rights Watch investigation says, you know, evidence suggests that it's highly unlikely that it was going to Mozambique and maybe it was intended to stop in Beirut after all. Um, but we still don't know to that day, you know, where was uh, that ammonium nitrate going? Why was it stored in, a, in the functioning port of, of the capital? And uh, a lot of ministers and officials, as you said, were aware, and this is what the human rights investigation has showed, 
and did not do anything about it. No proper action was taken. Even a few weeks uh, before the explosion happened, the president of the republic, the prime minister, and high-level officials were made aware of uh, the presence of that ammonium nitrate at the port. And again, no proper action was taken. Um, even when the fire, so this was started with a fire at the at the warehouse. When the fire erupted, they had about 40 minutes or so before the explosion happened to evacuate people and nothing was done. Now, let's go back to that fire. Has there ever been an explanation of how the fire began? No, unfortunately, uh, we still don't know how the fire started. Um, we just know there was a fire from eyewitness accounts, pictures, uh, videos. We know approximately that it started uh, around 5.40 p.m., so a half an hour or so before the twin blasts that rocked the city. But to this day, um, it is not clear. There was a, a hypothesis or a theory that was put on the table from uh, some Lebanese officials that there was some uh, wielding work done to a door uh, on that warehouse, and that might have been the reason. But there's been counter-evidence and counter-narratives, so we really don't know. And uh, this takes me to the point that three years on, um, us Lebanese survivors, families of the victims, still don't know what really happened on that day. No progress has been made uh, when it comes to finding the truth. And, of course, no one has... Uh has been charged over the explosion. Uh, the government ministers are claiming immunity. I mean, some ministers and lawmakers have been accused by the leading investigator into the blast. Um, there's an, a number of, of them, uh, but they did not show up for questioning. They've been using their political immunity to evade any kind of accountability. And even worse, what they've done is they've started a series of lawsuits, um, legal challenges to the investigator, whom, by the way, they nominated, which is fascinating, to try and suspend his work. And they've successfully done so. So the lead investigator into uh, the explosion hasn't been able to do his, his work. The local investigation has been uh, suspended. There's been no progress uh, three years on. And you have to understand that Lebanon's judiciary is not impartial. It's not independent. And so there are a lot of political interferences and they've managed to you know, stop uh, this process towards justice. And this is what is you know, um, stopping the families from grieving and finding any peace. How can you grieve and find peace when there's no justice and no accountability? Your book is to give the women of Lebanon a voice because you feel that all too often their voice has not been heard. Yes, women in our part of the world uh, Lebanon, but also the Middle East, don't really get to write history. And this is why I wanted this to be a women-led uh, narrative. Uh, I've also discovered throughout my reporting that women had very powerful uh, stories to share. Uh, they really opened up. They were powerful storytellers. And it's maybe because they've never had the platform to speak and to share uh, their stories. But there's, and, a, but there's and, a paradox here because, as you point out, Lebanon gave women the vote in 1953 and has a reputation or had a reputation 
as the most liberal country in the region. There's high rates of literacy and a vibrant feminist movement. Yeah, but this is just a facade, in my opinion. Um, in reality, women are still discriminated against in Lebanon and the laws. It's a very patriarchal society. Um, personal status laws are managed by religious courts and not by civil courts. And so women are discriminated against, not just uh, against men, but also uh, among themselves. So if a, ca a Catholic woman does not have the same rights as a Muslim Sunni woman, uh, uh, for example, they have very different um, rights. And this is what I talk about in, in, in the book as well, is that on top of this crisis, on top of the explosion, they have to fight these discriminatory uh, laws. Women to this day in Lebanon have no right to pass on nationality to their kids, just to give you an example, uh, if they marry a foreign man, whereas men can do that. Um, and they really suffer when it comes to inheritance, uh, divorce, and, and other issues. Tell, tell me one of the stories. There's so many, but tell me about Laura. Laura is uh, one of two uh, women firefighters at the Beirut Fire Brigade. And she was lucky that day because she was actually on shift, but her colleague, uh, Sahar, switched with her. And uh, Sahar died. She was uh, among the team of firefighters that went to extinguish the fire at the port, not knowing what was there. Um, and Laura survived. Um, we met a year after the explosion. Laura was very traumatized. Um, it's a very touching story because she was very close to Sahar and she feels very guilty for staying alive on that day when her best friend uh, got killed uh, by, uh, by the explosion. But there are so, so many terrible stories. The nearby hospitals, of course, were overwhelmed. They simply couldn't cope. And uh, I'm rereading what you wrote about events at St. George Hospital. Tell me about that. That's true. Um, Beirut hospitals were devastated and destroyed by the explosion. So imagine a city um, that has no functioning hospitals to help the injured to save lives. A lot of people ended up dying in these, these hospitals. The doctors and the nurses themselves were victims and survivors of the explosion. Um, and uh, I've spoken to a lot of doctors and nurses there. One of them is actually an Australian uh, gynecologist in ob -GYN who has a very, very powerful story on that day. She ended up uh, giving birth, helping two women give birth. Uh, to two babies as uh, the explosion rocked uh, the city. Her name is Stephanie, and um, it, it speaks of the stamina that these, uh, of these women, uh, how brave they were on that day to keep working in these exceptional circumstances when they've been hurt uh, themselves. So much to cover, Dola, but uh, so many of the women in Lebanon, this was not their first exposure to war and to violence on a massive scale, was it? Yes, that's that's correct. Um, you know, when I sat with these women and I started asking them about the explosion, many of them took me back to the civil war. Uh, they've been really surviving um, one cycle of violence after another without proper healing. It's just one trauma that piles on top of another. So the civil war, uh, some women are survivors of Israel's war against uh, Lebanon, political assassinations and, and bombings. It just never ends. What is the current economic and political situation in Lebanon, Dana? 
So in 2019, uh, almost a year before the explosion, um, an unprecedented economic and financial crisis hit Lebanon. Um, our currency uh, devalued. More than 90% of the Lebanese pound has lost its value to this day. And um, the banks, without announcing their bankruptcy, are actually bankrupt. So the Lebanese lost all of their deposits, all of their savings overnight. Everything they have in the banks today is mere ink on paper. And they haven't been able to access uh, their lifetime savings and, and deposits. And it's really heartbreaking. Um, I'm one of them. I also lost my savings. So did my husband and my extended um, family. And today, more than half of the Lebanese population is living under the poverty um, line. A lot of kids dropping out of school. Uh, there's hyperinflation, food insecurity for many. Uh, things are very dire. And that crisis that started in 2019 is still ongoing today. And what's really shocking is that the um, political elite that's in power has done nothing to take Lebanon out of this economic crisis. Uh, four years on since its onset, uh, they didn't um, you know, enact any reforms, uh, nothing, nothing has been done. And so the international community is unwilling to help Lebanon anymore without any, any change, any structural reforms um, to, to the state. And basically there's no state, it's a failed state today. So it's also very hard to see how things are going to change when nothing is functioning anymore. After the catastrophe, you continued to report on what you were witnessing. But finally, you had to leave Lebanon with your daughter. And uh, after living through so much turmoil in Lebanon, can you, can you see a time when you might return? Unfortunately, I don't see that at the moment. Um, I always say and repeat, there's only hope in Lebanon if there's accountability. If uh, this crime, the Beirut explosion, and the economic crisis, which is another crime, because as I said, everyone lost their money in the banks. If these crimes go unpunished, there's no justice, no accountability, then there's no hope for Lebanon anymore. And the only day I'll go back is when I see accountability in, in my country. I really had to break those cycles of violence. I have a kid who's seven, um, a girl, and I didn't want her to live through the same history again and again. From my grandmother to my daughter, history keeps repeating itself in Lebanon, unfortunately. And it's because of that prevalent culture of impunity. You have written a remarkable book and uh, I congratulate you on it and thank you for coming on the program. Delan thank you. Thank you. Mawad is a Lebanese journalist and author of All She Lost, The Explosion in Lebanon, The Collapse of a Nation and The Women Who Survive, published by Bloomsbury. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.